The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Tahu Matheson has worked for Opera Australia since 2007, commencing with the company as a repetiteur. In 2017, Tahu became the head of music for the company. He studied piano with Karl Randelou in Germany and with Oleg Stepanov and Natasha Valashenko at the Queensland Conservatorium, where he completed his Master of Music. Tahu has conducted many concerts, including a concert performance of a new opera, Nelson, by Stuart Greenbaum, and a performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. He's also a conductor of opera. And for Opera Australia, his repertoire has included Tosca, The Elixir of Love, The Magic Flute, La Boheme, La Traviata and The Pearl Fishers. Aida on the Beach, tours of Don Giovanni and in Melbourne earlier in the year, the celebrated production of Lohengrin, starring Jonas Kaufmann. Through November and December, Tahu Matheson conducts Opera Australia's brand new Sydney-exclusive open-air event, Opera on Cockatoo Island, with a gritty new production of Bizet's much-loved Carmen, giving visitors a thrilling opportunity to experience world-class opera under the stars with a stunning harbour view. Stages caught up with Tahu at his place of work, Opera Australia, to discover what's in store for audiences attending Carmen, and the gateway through which he discovered his passion for telling big stories on the operatic stage. So you're warm. I'm warm. I'm ready to go. <clears throat> Relaxed. You had a bit of a life as a singer, didn't you? Uh, look, for a little bit, because um, well, I suppose we're going to talk about this a little bit, aren't we? But I, when I when I studied in Germany, is when I had my real Wagner moment, and that's when I realised I had to get into opera because I was just you know, practicing Wagner instead of practicing my whatever, Rachmaninoff. Um, and uh, when I got back to Brisbane, trying to get into opera, I thought, well, how, how am I going to do this? And uh, of course, one of the first things you do is play for all the singing lessons. And I happened to play for the um, 
the course master at the time, Jim Christensen of Opera, of um, Queensland Opera, and um, all of his students, of course, were from the chorus. So I knew everybody, heard everybody in the chorus, and I thought, well, I reckon I can do that. So I went and did an audition on the stage. It's one of the scariest things I've ever done, because you know, I was a pianist, and he was hide behind an instrument. You're being exposed. And just to get out there, and I didn't know how to stand. I didn't even know how to walk on. Because you never think how you walk, and then you've got all these people looking at you, and you sort of suddenly think, do I, how much do I swing my arms, and that kind of thing, you know. So walk on, stand very awkwardly, the piano starts, you've got one bar, and then you have to sing. And it was great fun, but I was probably more nervous than... Um, <laughs> well, not, not the most nervous I've been, but it was extremely nerve-wracking. So, so um, the gateway um, uh, music to that was was Wagner. What was your first exposure to Wagner? How did, how did you um, come to be playing? Um, my first exposure to Wagner actually was um, a CD that my dad had made with the NZSO. And he'd made it years and years ago with Don McIntyre singing, you know, some bleeding chunks of Wagner, you know, the Dutchman's monologue, um, a little bit of um, Meisterzinger, and then Vortan's Farewell. And I, somehow I knew the Dutchman's monologue. I don't know how. So I used to listen to that every now and then. And then I just switched it off because, you know, it was a pianist. I would play whatever. Um, and then one day I let the CD go. And I heard, you know, some lovely music from Meisters, and I thought that was very good, very nice, you know. And then the Dutchman's monologue, uh, the um, Vortan's Farewell started. And I just could not believe that music like that existed. Because it's a strange thing, you know, when you're going through the conservatorium, as, as a student, you sort of don't include opera in your journey. You know, you go through all the symphonic stuff. And so you get up to Brahms and Bruckner and then you go to, you know, Strauss tone poems and it's like there's a chunk missing. How did this get to there, you know? And of course it's Wagner, but you sort of don't realise that an opera composer can have had this impact. And so I heard this piece and I was completely overwhelmed. You know, just by being, I had no idea what was going on, mm. just by the music um, alone. And then someone said, oh, well, if you like that, you should listen to Tristan. So I went, mm, all right. But I did, and then I got, and that's when I got absolutely hooked a couple of years later, when I finally sat down and listened all the way through Tristan. Again, not interested in the words at all. I sat there with the full score, just reading it, just, and then one day I thought, Oh, I suppose I better look at the words. And I looked at the words. And then all those incredible moments that I knew, those climaxes, were, of course, dramatic points in the, in the, um, in the story. And, yeah, I was hooked. And, and for a while, you get this awful sort of Wagneritis. And I think there is actually a, some sort of clinical disease because you get so addicted to this stuff that for a while everything else pales into insignificance. You know, nothing can compare. You look at a Brahms symphony and go, what's this unco heavyweight stuff? Where's the counterpoint? There's no proper counterpoint, you know. 
The only thing that can really compare with it is when you're in, you know, crazy Wagner mode, is something like Samantha Passion or the B minor Mass, where you know drama mixes with musical technique, and I mean Bach does this incredible thing where the counterpoint makes the harmony, not the other way around. You know, you always feel, for instance, in a Beethoven fugue that he's sort of thinking vertically and he's written these chords out and he's got to get from here to here and here. And they're incredible dissonances, but you still think he's thinking this way. With Bach, somehow he's just writing five lines on top of each other and he's inventing new chords whilst he's doing it, you know. And I think there are moments like that in Wagner. There are a couple of moments in Tristan where it's, that definitely happens when he combines, you know, three or four themes and it invents a new musical language. They're very big themes. They're, they're huge themes. The, yeah. the sounds are big as, yeah. as well, and vast. Um, that attraction to, to size um, takes me back to uh, some trivia I read about you that as a teenager, you <laughs> wanted to be large like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, I know he's not necessarily Germanic, but, but he's big and European, just like Wagner. Yeah, I mean, isn't that sort of don't most teenage boys go through that I certainly did you know I wanted to be stronger than everybody else and well I mean when I when I was very young and I was still living in Germany it must have been the were there Olympics in 84 do you reckon Does that yeah, right? Does in that Los Angeles like in Los Olympics, Angeles I think yeah yeah around about then I think well perhaps the next one but this chap a German swimmer called Michael Gross literally Michael Big, you know, won the races for Germany. And he was exactly two metres tall, which is exactly how tall I am now. And I wanted um, to be exactly the same height as him. So I've actually achieved my life's goal. You've got there. Yeah. You've got there. Uh, Tahu is um, a Maori name? It is, yeah. Yeah. So um, your parents, how, how did they arrive at that name? Uh, my dad was a Kiwi, and he always felt the Maori side of things very strongly. So we have some Maori heritage quite a way back. It's about five generations back. And my, and I think there's a little bit of contra controversy here. I don't know whether it's my grandmother or my grandfather, and the picture of this rather wizened old person that we've seen with the, you know, the, the moko around his way. It doesn't really show clearly whether it's a man or a woman, you know. Um, was a chieftainess of one of the tribes, one of the Naitahu tribes in the South Island. And I've actually seen the signature on the Treaty of Waitangi. Um, but my dad always felt that side of things very, very strongly. And he convinced my mum to give me and my two brothers, Maori names. I have two brothers, Tane and Tanga. We all had um, English names. I'm John, and then I put David and Charles, um, just in case. Because, you know, 40 years ago, it wasn't, um, wasn't terribly fashionable to have weird, wacko names. Now it's great. Everybody wants them, you know, put an extra K in your name or whatever. But um, they're a bit worried that, you know, if you have these sort of strange names, and my granddad would always sort of so, you know, when are you going to change your real name and that kind of stuff? Um, uh, but no, my dad always felt that side really strongly and that's where we get the names from. Music is uh, a huge part of the, the, the Māori experience, isn't it? I've, I've never heard a Māori who can't sing. <laughs> well, that's right. They all sing constantly and singing is part of all their ceremonies. I, what I would like to do at some stages 
find out what sort of real Maori music is like because I think the stuff that we hear now is very obviously very Western influenced, lots lots of you know soupy Western harmonies, but they all just sing. I remember going to an opening of a marae, um, you know, at dawn. You know, it's all incredibly beautiful and everything, but they just sing all the time, mm-hmm. and they've got these powerful voices. Mm-hmm. The other thing they do really well is eat. They just <laughs> like they just eat mm-hmm. at an astonishing rate. Mm. Just consume and consume and consume. But it's a sound that really gets into your soul. And oh, no question. I, I suppose it harks back to Wagner as well. It really can consume you. Yeah, I think that's, that's what music is meant to do, I think, isn't it? That's good good music. True. Not I'm with all, you, I'm not with you there. No, I don't know about achy, breaky heart. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, yes, okay. that's, a, that's an earwig. Sure, it's only get stuck, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So Tahu, at, at the moment you, um, you're conducting La Traviata at, yep. at the house. You are preparing a Carmen on, on Cockatoo Island uh, and is also balancing your responsibilities as head of music here at Opera Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you finding much time for yourself? Uh, well, we're still at Sundays. Yeah, day of rest. Early mornings. I went to the gym early this morning. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, th- there is there is quite a lot to do, but um, you know, Traviata's up now, so that's just evening performances. Um, starting next week will be Carmen rehearsals, and that is that is going to be quite full on. And then yeah, the responsibilities as head of music there, you know, they're considerable, and particularly at the moment, of course, with the. Uh, the changes there's just quite a lot to keep an eye on as um, well as things develop. Uh, being a head of music in in an opera company, you know, you're probably the leading arts. You are the leading arts organisation in in Australia. Uh, it's it must be all-consuming um, in that at any one time. How many operas would you have uh, in in production or in rehearsal? Uh, well, I mean, right now is very unusual because we've got. Um, we're going to have two operas running and one rehearsing, which is very few, because usually we've got about, uh, it must be at least five or six, and already looking ahead, you know, the chorus will already be looking ahead to next year, well actually the chorus will be looking ahead to next year, so they, they're probably doing about seven or eight operas right now. Um, but you're always coaching already for, you know, someone has to do a role that they've never done before in six months. And it might be a big role. So start now, not two weeks before, you know. And some of these roles are quite big, so you've got to sing them in as well and just learn how to sing them. Well, it's like going to the gym, isn't it? What results? You've got to put that time in. Yeah, and you've got to put it in early and you've got to put it in regularly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So Carmen on Cockatoo Island, I mean, the opera company is experienced with opera on the harbour. Um, Easy. They have a, there's a decent recipe now. They know exactly what to do to get the opera and going. Yes. But, but on Cockatoo Island, you, uh, I think it's, it would, must be a very first venue for you. You haven't played there before. No. No. So what, what are the, the logistics that have had to be considered to, to stage that opera on the island? I think it's going to be very, very different from Opera on the Harbour. Um, Which you would hope so, a different experience for your audience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's going to be much more sort of grungy and sort of netherworld type of thing. I don't think we're going to have the 
I think I'm right in saying this. I don't think we're going to have that high-end dining that that Hosh that you could do at Hosh. Mm. I think we're going to have you know like a, a tapas bar and all that kind of stuff, and it's going to be sort of a bit rock and roll and all that kind of stuff. Um, but there are things like you just you know it's on an island, mm. so it's going to be very difficult for the technical team. They have to get all the stuff onto the island, first of all. And then they have the, what's the infrastructure like there? What things can they use? There are all sorts of things that they're going to have to work out as we go, like we did when we did Hosh the first time. Mm. Having done all these big outdoor events, our technical team is pretty savvy with all that kind of stuff. But, you know, how do we run the cables from the... Um, where the orchestra is going to be to where the action is going to be, I think it's quite a lot further. How's the how's the sound going to work? How's the video of me going to work? Is it going to be useful at all? Is it going to be so delayed that they can't really watch it anyway? You know, all 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 those sorts of things, as well as actually just having to get to and from the island. I mean, it's not far actually. I I, I went out there to do. Um, a sort of a launch the other day and I got on a circular key I think it was 15 minutes to the island so it's not, not very far um, but you still got to go all the way across the water yeah. I mean that's wonderful that's one of the in my mind is one of the attractions but for us having to to get there and, and work it's a bit tricky and you can't just rush out stage door and, uh, and get you can't at the end I uh, think they're providing some sort of barge for us or some sort of thing. There'll be some sort of purpose-built um, device that will get us across the water, I hope. The, the orchestra and the singers will be amplified, I yes. imagine. Yeah. yeah. So, so that would be quite tricky in itself, just to, to balance those sounds and get them right in an outdoor space. Yeah, look, we've got this guy called Tony David Cray, who's just kind of a miracle worker with all that. Um, he's, you know, he did s several of the hoshes. Um, and he just, and he also did um, Aida on the beach, one of those other craziest things that we did, you know, up in Queensland. Mm. And um, you know, he just, he just sits there and quietly works. And whilst we sort of have a break, you just hear the music playing in the background. And what he's done is he's recorded it, and then he listens to it again tweaks a few things in the recording, going, oh, I think we need a bit more of this, a bit more of this, oh, the singers can't hear, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And then we get back to it, he's already sorted out some of the problems, whilst we were having a break. It's very exciting to get out of the, uh, an opera theatre and to a site-specific venue. I, I remember seeing The Eighth Wonder presented by Opera Australia oh, yes. on the steps of the Opera House, yeah. which was oh. thrilling. Yeah, I was down in Melbourne, so I couldn't, I, I couldn't it. see it. Right. It was during the... Ring cycle, I think. It was during the second time we did the ring cycle. So Tony Legg stayed here and conducted it, I think. But yeah, I mean, I saw the pictures yeah. and it looked fantastic. I find that thing, oh, that type of um, event, very exciting. Mm -hmm. And I think this one's going to be, I think it's going to be completely new, new again, you know. And, I, you know, Liesl Badoric doing her sort of crazy direction. I mean, she's not usually crazy director. I mean, specifically crazy for this one, you know, yeah. sort of rock stars and motorbikes and all that kind of stuff. I think it's going to be really quite unusual. I think the stage there is very big, so they, you know, stunt motorbikes can you know race around and do their tricks and everything. Hopefully not, you know, 
stuff up too much because no. it could be you know, fatal. You paid up your insurance. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> Are you concerned about the weather? Because that must be a consideration. Oh, look, can you believe there's a third La Nina? I mean, how did that happen? It's far too many. Mm. Oh, but there's talk that probably will be a four. Let's touch wood that there's not. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Oh, look, yeah, I mean, I remember sitting sitting and watching one of the hoshes in my, um, in my raincoat. I still found it very exciting. Mm. Better if it's not, I suppose, but yeah, it's hard for selling tickets though, isn't it? I mean, look at today, it's going to rain again. Who'd buy a ticket to an outdoor event today? Uh, but you never can tell. No. You never can tell. Now, Tahu, you've been uh, with Opera Australia since 2007. Yeah. That's a long time, isn't it? It is. You oh, yeah, yeah. commenced as a repetiteur? Yeah. 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 That's, I mean, that's, I think I'm most conductors start not all some people you know go specifically to a conducting academy or somewhere I always had a yen to conduct because um, uh, just because of the repertoire it's so wonderful um, and you can't really quite do justice to a Wagner score on the piano you can come pretty close on a big piano in a room that's you know quite small you can make a lot of noise in there and you feel sort of great um, but yeah, I started off, you know, doing the usual things, you know, desperately learning Bohem and desperately learning Carmen and all these sorts of things just at the, by the way, next week you're going to play a run of this. Oh my God, okay, I've never seen that opera before, you know, and then slowly you get used to it. And you know, it's, it's hard to start with. I mean, how do you follow conductors? They're really weird, you know, they do all this weird motion in the air and then you're meant to sort of interpret it and you know sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't and you know anyway. one of the hardest things of being a musician i think in playing a score is turning the page there must be an art to being a good page turner well yeah see in the orchestra it's pretty good you know because they sit two to a desk and one of them turns and the other one keeps on playing as a pianist, oh my lord, you know, and it, there's no way you can learn an opera score from memory. So you sit there and you're really dependent on that score, and then you're in a chorus production and you think, oh, I'm going to turn the page. Oh no, this bit's really difficult. I want to play this bit. No, I should turn the page now. Oh, oh god. So, and then it's a disaster, and then you reach out and the score flies off the piano, or you know, you turn two pages at once, and then you're embarrassed because you can't quite remember what's over the page, and so you completely stuff it up and the rehearsal stops. So yes, page turning can be an absolute disaster. I think someone wrote a, a, like a master's thesis or something like that on page turning. Right. There you go, then just thought I'd put that in. I haven't read no, it. That's great. But great. Um, somebody definitely did. Certainly an art. Yeah. Um, I'm fascinated by, by the uh, pianists who use an iPad and everything is there electronically. I, I couldn't trust that. You'd yeah, I, you, you do get used to it, and I do do it now, and that program, full score is very good because you can put it on performance mode, and then all that happens is you turn the page. Because, you know, sometimes if you try to turn the page, then it thinks you're going to edit, and then the page gets stuck, and it's much worse. But if you put it on performance mode, that... That doesn't happen, and you do get used to it. But the first time I used an iPod, iPad, I turned the iPad over. Right. Instead of turning the page, I just turned the whole iPad over. And again, disaster. Everything fell apart. <laughs> the iPad, you know, the music turned on its side, and oh, you know, terrible. Terrible. 
But you learn that one pretty quickly. Yeah. That doesn't happen. Don't do it again. Yeah. 2017, you became the, the head of music uh, at the company. Uh, what, what do you love most about your job as head of music? Um, you have to deal with a lot of people and they're all artists, mostly artists, which means they're all, how can we put this diplomatically, interesting. <laughs> creative personalities. They're all creative personalities, you know, whether it's the, the repetiteurs or the singers or the conductors. But so you're constantly dealing with all these people and the great thing about being head of music is that you have to be across all the shows. Whereas when I was a repetiteur, of course I was focused on one. But so, you know, I have to go to rehearsals of all the shows, be able to jump in to play or conduct or whatever. Um, I mean, that, that's a thrill, you know. And you start to think, oh, I know these pieces, I know these pieces, this is so wonderful. Oh, never done this one before. Um, try and organise things, how things are going to work, program how this is going to happen and everything. Yeah, it's pretty... It's a pretty wonderful job, actually. That's a lot of notes in your head. I mean, as an actor, I'm just trying to have a similar experience of, you know, having six or seven plays on the go and stepping into that rehearsal room and, and into that uh, meeting and, and just recalibrating uh, what the story is that you're focusing on. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's tricky as well, but particularly in the last few years, we've had sort of... Um, I suppose what Lyndon called the core repertoire. So we'd quite often do Bohem, Carmen, Traviata, those sorts of, you know, the, is it, they're the, called the top five or whatever, yeah. that sort of pretty sure they're Celtics, everybody Aida, all yeah. those ones. Yeah. yeah. And so those ones are there, so you don't need to think about those ones too much. You can jump in and play them or conduct them or whatever. Um, and so you can focus on the new one. So it's like you're expanding your repertoire constantly. It's not quite the same as being an actor because um, uh, certainly I'm not doing it from memory. Mm. You know, I've always got a score in front of me. True, true. The singers, when they're in three or four operas, it's a different thing, mm. of course. And it, you know, being part of a, a, a repertory company like this, sometimes the singer, this one singer will be performing one opera perhaps performing another role in another opera, but also covering a bigger role in that opera. And that's quite difficult, I think. So part of our job as you know, head of music and repetitor and all that kind of stuff is really to give a lot of support there, you know. And we have things like, you know, opening night of Traviata the other night. Tenor, suddenly, at one o'clock in the afternoon, just called in, oh no, can't perform tonight, I'm sick. So, oh God, cover, opening night. Are you ready? Let's go. Let's have a rehearsal. Okay, we do this rehearsal, then we do a music rehearsal, and then are you ready? Have you fit into your costume properly? You get your, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, I was at the opening night of Madame Butterfly early in the year, and Diego oh. uh, took ill at interval. And, and um, pure chance the cover was in the audience. Mm -hmm. did, you know, covers are not usually there on opening night, but he wanted to see the show. <laughs> and after the first act, we said, all right, you'd better come backstage, just in case. And sure enough, Diego, he just had some, just got something caught in his throat and couldn't sing anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, who'd be a singer? Mm -hmm. It's awful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but 
But that, that's what makes theatre so exciting, doesn't it? Oh, isn't it, though? Yeah, isn't yeah. it so exciting? And things like that happen. There's nothing like a live performance. But I think people are starting to realise that again. Because I think for a couple of years after COVID, sort of you know, audiences weren't great. But they're coming back now. Mm. I mean, they flocked to Phantom, that's for sure. Absolutely, yes. They've, they've got that um, confidence to be back mm. in sitting close to people again. Yeah. But I mean, I've travelled pretty full as well, which is, you know, it's exciting. That's great. Full That's audience. Great. So how big's your support staff? How many people on, on the music staff here at uh, Well, at the moment we've got, we've only got four t- full-time people. Listen to that thunder. It's very Wagnerian, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> Start singing something. No, no. Um, yeah, so at the moment we've only got four full-time people, which is not enough. And hopefully by the end of next year we'll be up to six or seven. Um, and so we have to pull in casual people. But then there are lots of so those are the those are the pianists. Um, but then we've got quite a lot, lot of other people that help with programming and scheduling and organisation and all those things that I'm really excellent at. In a way. In a way. Looking at it from some particular direction. <laughs> Now, Tahu, you were born in London. I was. Raised in Brisbane. You grew up in a musical family. I did. Yeah. Yes, my dad was a conductor. And my mum was a singer. So it was kind of inevitable, I suppose. Mezzo-soprano. She was, yeah. I think, I believe she auditioned for him. And after that, I don't like to inquire too closely what happened. But um, <laughs> I believe they hit it off. Um, and yeah, so look, <clears throat> it was a pretty wonderful childhood um, because it was filled with music all the time. I mean, I think I do the same now as my dad did, which is I basically sing all the time. I'm walking around the house, I'm singing or conducting or whatever. Drives everybody else a little bit crazy, as it used to drive me crazy. And I'm so embarrassed, you know, when I'd have my school friends over and dad would be walking around singing. She don't sing you're a child at school ridiculous you know but yeah he was conductor we followed him around the world so I was born in London and then we lived uh, about seven years in Germany when he was in Mannheim and then he felt the pull of the land and we went to New Zealand Um, and then we ended up in Brisbane so it would seem that your destiny was to have a career in music did did you ever consider anything else you wanted to go into law or medicine or drive a truck I wanted to be an astronaut for a while. Oh. I got very, very fascinated with um, with space and the cosmos and all that kind of stuff. I found it just um, absolutely inspiring, um, exhilarating, exciting. Um, but then it's funny, later on, I kind of feel like Wagner and the philosophy of art itself, I suppose, it also has that immense space in it, yeah. you know, so you can just, that's also infinite, you know, you can also just go dig further and further into that, so you find your own infinite space, I think. Um, but yeah, I think astronaut was probably the only other job I could have done, but I think, you know, that lasted from when I was seven till eight or something, so never really that serious. 
You started piano studies with your father. I did. He was a teacher. Yeah, terrible teacher. Absolutely. Awful. I was going to say, what was it like having a dad oh, as, as a teacher? And could oh, you distinguish awful. between the two? Or could he? No, my dad was an absolutely fantastic <clears throat> dad, lovely, you know, sweet, kind, all that kind of stuff. Except he was teaching me the piano. He just would get so frustrated. You know, playing a piece in G major and I played an F naturally, just like, what, why? could not understand that I could possibly play an F natural. Has to be an F sharp, you know. So he couldn't put himself in the mindset of a, however old I was, five year old. Um, so he was terrible at that. So mum stopped that. We went to some other teacher in Germany who taught us much, much better than dad. But I was the only one to survive. My, my other two brothers gave up, I think. As a, most as a result of dad. It's just terrible. You know? <laughs> so, um, who were your teachers then at piano? Uh, I actually can't remember the name of the one in Germany. And then I didn't have a teacher for a while. And my dad just let me do what I wanted to. Um, and then at high school, I wasn't really sure. I never did any of those exams, you know, the AMEB things or Royal College or whatever they were that some of my friends were doing, but always sort of kept it up. And my dad sort of said, yeah, it's good when you keep practicing. Um, and then one year I thought I should audition for the Conservatorium Music School um, in Brisbane. And I played, I don't know, some Chopin or something, and they, they, they let me in very sweetly. I don't think I played very well at all. And that's when I sort of had my first proper piano lessons from Stephen Savage up there um, and you know he told me how to hold my hands and all that kind of stuff and he said well you've got a lot to learn haven't you um, which I did um, and then of course I started to become properly interested in it um, and then I auditioned for the conservatorium after it's funny I, I after school I, I never really had any doubts that I would go into music, but I didn't really work hard enough during school. So when I got to the conservatorium, I had quite a lot of catching up to do. But I did, you know, and you work hard. So did the required discipline uh, as a kid come easy? Or did, were your parents no. constantly sending you to practice? Um, certainly, yes. You know, there's that mixture of, you know, carrot and... What's the other thing? Is it a whip? You can't say whip nowadays. No, no, no. Carrot and um, dangling a carrot. Carrot and stick, isn't it? No, you can't. No, you can't do that. Um, uh, but yeah, sort of. You know, if you do an hour and a half of practice, you may be able to watch that particular television program. And you, you know, there's always something like that that can make you practice. Were you a sporty kid? Was was I? Look, because I'm quite tall, I actually got into rowing, and I found rowing was great, and I loved the discipline of rowing. Um, and I also love the fact that I got quite strong. Not as strong as Arnold Schwarzenegger, but, um, <laughs> but I got quite strong. Um, and But no, that was it. And I really, I, I still am not a huge fan of sport. It doesn't sort of thrill me greatly. You know, every now and then I watch something, oh, that's good. Um, tennis, I find the, that can be quite thrilling at times. Um, it's not. It's not the same thrill as you know, listening to Tristan for me. <laughs> so, so no, I wasn't really a sporty kid. 
Dad being a conductor, were you, uh, did you get the opportunity to spend a lot of time in theatres and rehearsal rooms? Quite, quite a bit. Um, not as much as you'd think, I, I think. Um, what I was well aware of, though, is Dad would often bring singers home and coax them at home. So I would hear him working with, you know, all, all manner of singing and working on sometimes incredible detail and sometimes for, you know, a long time, like three or four hours sometimes, you know, with, with, a, with a break or whatever. And, uh, you know, when Lisa Gastine was learning the ring here in Brisbane, I mean, he coached her on that a lot. So he'd hear this astonishing voice in the house, you know, singing all the bits of Brunhilde that I now know so well. At the time, I was just thinking, oh, what's this incredible music, you know. Um, so I think that's what I was more aware of. I did go into theatres and that kind of stuff, but not, not as much as you, as you think. The call of the conductor, um, as you say, uh, Wagner doesn't sound the same, just on a keyboard. You're effectively, with that fa facing that orchestra, you're effectively, uh, want of a better metaphor, driving the bus, aren't you? Yeah. It's all lays in your hands, hands as conductor. Yes, yes and no. Look, some, look an orchestra like the AOBO, for instance, they, they are they're pretty good, you know. And something like Traviata, I think they could they could almost play it without a conductor. You know, they know it that well. Mm. There's certainly big chunks of it. Like if you, for instance, if you say Carmen Overture, they could easily play that without a conductor. Which means, you know, you either show them something different or let them play it. The role of the conductor sort of becomes slightly different as orchestras get better and better. You know, I think most good symphonies could play, most good symphony orchestras could play most of the Beethoven symphonies by themselves. You know, they just listen to each other and play. So the conductor comes and shows something else. In opera, you do really need one to... Well, you're the conduit between the singer and the orchestra, aren't you? Yeah, yeah between the stage and stage and the orchestra, and quite often the orchestra can't properly hear the stage, and the stage can't properly hear the orchestra, in which case they look at that guy or girl down there waving a stick and try and decipher what he or she is doing. And you spend, you know, you spend hours trying to make sure that your gestures are clear. Um, and, you know, hopefully expressive and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yes and no. And, you know, I've seen conductors and I've been in the position where, you know, I've done something that's not great and the orchestra kind of goes, oh, I know what you mean. And then they play together anyway, you know. But I have also seen moments when it's sort of, well, that was so confusing that the orchestra comes apart or the stage and the orchestra comes apart or whatever. So yes, it is a huge amount of responsibility, but you know you're dealing with live musicians. It's, you know, it's not like you're dealing with, with robots that do everything you say and then it goes completely um, um, awry if you, if you do it wrong. They've all got brains, they're all fantastic musicians, they're all listening to each other, they're all listening as much as they can to the stage, they all, 
almost all, and they've all got some newbies, know the piece really well. So they all sort of club together. And you sort of, yes, you lead them, but they really know what they're doing as well. You would have an established rapport with the uh, musicians of the orchestra here at the company, and they would know you too. And yeah, I think I know them pretty well now. But but occasionally you would need to step up in front of uh, an audience, uh, an orchestra you don't know. Sure, I assume that must be a daunting experience. Yeah, but it's also quite quite fun, you know. And you sort of and when you when you do that, I mean, the first thing every orchestra reacts slightly differently to the the stick, you know, that gesture that you put in the air. And some of them play almost on the beat, some of them, you know, play later, and some of them put a beat down and then they sort of seem to have a little cup of tea and then sort of go, oh, shall we play, shall we? Oh, okay then. And you sort of think, oh, look, how am I going to manage this? Um, so, but that's always exciting as well, like how they're going to react, how am I going to make these guys move, you know, how am I going to change and mould to them, because as you're conducting, the most important thing to do is actually to listen, and so you can't, yes, yes, you're leading, but there's no point putting down a beat, and then if the sound doesn't happen, you just pretend that the sound has happened, so you sort of have to sometimes wait a little bit for the sound to happen, or the singer's and so you're constantly adjusting, um, as are the players in the orchestra, constantly. They're constantly listening to each other, you know, and the, suddenly the oboe has a solo, and they all listen. And, you know, he or she is having a slightly different day, or they're just feeling inspired, so they're taking a little bit more time, or whatever, and you listen, and you adjust constantly. And that's actually the most important thing, you know. You're, you're a fit fellow. You, know, you indicated that you were at the gym this morning. I was at the gym this morning, yes. Yeah. Everybody, six o'clock, just so you know. <laughs> Is that all part of the regime for your work as a conductor? Um, you have to feel conductor fit, I suppose. Well, look, it, it is for me. Um, I, I tend to get into it, so I end up going through a couple of shirts, usually, in a night. Um, so there are other conductors who, who don't at all. I mean, some of them just, you know, take it easy and can do everything with, you know, minimal effort. It's sometimes quite incredible and they don't even sweat. Mm. You know, it's astonishing. But for me, it's really quite important to be, to be fit. It must be exhausting because you are investing a lot of emotion into, well, conducting an opera like The Ring. How, how long does that go for? Well, the ring is—it's about sixteen hours of music. Yeah. So I've never—I've never done the ring. I'd love to do the ring. Um, just put it out there. It just can't mm. okay, listening. Um, but Lohengrin, for instance, that—that's long. Mm. You know, the fact first act is perhaps an hour and ten, and then the second act is very long, an hour and forty or so, and then the third act is another hour and ten, something like that again. So that's—that's that's really quite a lot of um, conducting. And concentration, you know, it's that, just not to lose focus. Because you just gotta make sure that you're the one person who is focusing the whole time so that even if someone on stage or in the orchestra just 
you know, mine's wandered a little bit, as it might well do when they're counting rests or the guys on stage are sort of, you know, doing this for the tenth time. What are we having for dinner tonight? Oh God, it's my turn to sing. You know, you, you want someone, someone there. I mean, virtually never happens, but you know, it's just like, it's your turn now. Um, and you might have to, you know, bring someone out of their reverie or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's the concentration. I think that's the hardest thing. The physical movements, not so much. I mean, you do get a little bit sore by the end of the night, you know, slashing about for four hours. But, um, but that concentration is the one that really, really tires you. So how do you how do you wind down after a performance? Well, alcohol. Just, yeah, I'll tell you. Yeah. Well, it's medicinal. Medicinal. Ju- just to exactly. Yeah, just to, to settle down. Yeah. Are you wired? Are you up for quite a while, or are you quite yeah. easy to go home and go to sleep? No, no, I'm pretty, pretty wired, mm. generally. Um, but you know, just a couple of, couple of beers. Replace the fluids. You know, yeah. it's important. You know, electrolytes, carbohydrates, they're all in beer, aren't they? They're Absolutely. Very important. <laughs> um, that's, you know, that's terrific. And you know, the, the, I love those stories of you know, Richter and Rostropovich when they said they used to play. Um, they used to work hard and then play hard. And there was some famous story when they were recording the, actually perhaps with Shostakovich as well. Uh, I can't remember. But they were recording one of the Shostakovich, whatever. And uh, they worked like demons for you know their their time in in the studio, three hours. You know, just again, again, repeat, repeat, better, better, better. You know, fix this bit. Let's try again. Everything. And then twenty minutes later, they were completely drunk. In the- <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just sort of, but it's that, it's also quite a good thing, you know, to be able to separate, you know, work hard and then you play hard. We tend sort of to work hard, but then you play, but you're still sort of thinking about what you should be doing at work and perhaps mm-hmm. I'd, and they had this ability just not to do that. Like they've done my work and off we go. <laughs> uh, a new opera or... Uh, an established opera that you've not conducted before, mm-hmm. how long would it take you to prepare that? Uh, it's, it's always a tricky question because, for instance, Traviata, it's the first time I've conducted it, but I've repetited it so many times, I've heard it so many times, I've been the assistant conductor so many times that it still took me, I'd say, a month of... I mean, I was looking at it before that, but a month of really quite hard work just looking at the score and deciding how you're going to do every little bit. And it's tricky with an opera like Traviata because you think you know it so well that it's tempting not to study it properly. But then you, you know, you go just to the score, like, you know, as an actor, just go back to the text. Don't go to someone who's done it. Go back to the text. What do you think it means? Oh, everybody does it like this, but actually, it doesn't say do that. Why are we all? Is it just a tradition? Is it a good tradition? Do I really want to know it? If it's an opera I don't know, then it will be um, probably longer. And Lohengrin, that that was really, I mean, that probably took a good six months to learn properly. And you want to be able to, you know, if the score falls off the stand, you want to be able to keep going. So as much as possible. Learn it from memory, and that's in your muscle memory now. That's in your uh, emotional literacy. So, if someone says, "Can you conduct Lohengrin again?" I hope so. Yeah, I'd be. Yeah, I think I'd. I think I'd. I would relearn it 
very quickly. Mm. I think it could be a matter of days, having worked that hard on it and done those performances. Have you got a favourite sound in the orchestra? Um, not really. There are all sorts of different favourite sounds. You know, there's that astonishing string sound when they all play, well, either a beautiful warm fortissimo sound, but also an entire string section all playing pianissimo. And it's, it's something you, you can't get that apart from a live experience. So, you know, have a good large string section and they're all playing pianissimo. And so it's, you know, 40 people and hardly louder than a whisper, you know. And it's so different from just one person being soft, yeah. you know. But then, I mean, you get a brass chorale, you know, and you just get a beautifully balanced brass chorale with, with everybody, you know, trumpets, horns, trombones, everybody. And I mean, that can be so warm and soft and then they can have this incredible attack. But then you can also have that in the wind section as well. So no, there's, there's not one favorite sounds, there are many different favorite sounds. Excellent, excellent. Um, so a, a big um, state of change with the opera company, mm -hmm. uh, the departure of uh, Lyndon Terracini as artistic director, and, yeah. and we will learn the new uh, AD in December, I believe, isn't it? I think it's December, yeah. yeah. So that's very exciting. Well, it, look, any change is exciting, yeah. isn't it? Change can be can be so thrilling, mm. I think. So you've got to, to just kind of go with it. Well, it, that that is the answer, isn't it? We we can be fearful of change, but yeah. uh, it, it always works out as being. Uh, yeah. yeah. Who said the only permanent thing is change? <laughs> who one did? Of those, who did? Somebody well, did. It's one of those Greek philosophers, wasn't it? One of those guys. Uh, Tahu, thank you for this conversation. Um, continued triumph to you and the Opera Company oh, in, in, in the years ahead. And um, Chookers for Carmen on, on Cockatoo Island. And um, Which night are you coming? Uh, hopefully only. Oh, great. Well, I hope to see you there. Yes. Um, a beer afterwards. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> that'd be fantastic. <laughs> Perhaps two after that one, I think. All right. Thanks, Tahu. My pleasure. Set in the industrial surrounds of Sydney's historic Cockatoo Island, this edgy production of Karamen has been created by celebrated director Liesl Bedoric and set and costume designer Mark Thompson. Premiering on 25th of November, this will be an exciting and immersive production of Bizet's opera, with motorbike stunts and nightly fireworks, plus music that even first-time opera-goers will recognise and enjoy. This unique Sydney summer experience is an all-inclusive night out, with a customised dining offering and pop-up bars on site at one of the most unique locations in the Emerald City. For bookings, you can call Opera Australia Box Office on 9318 8200 or www.opera.org.au. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Eyes. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages.